0: Well, I have the distinct pleasure this morning, not of bringing God's Word to you, but of introducing our speaker, Uh, Pastor Mark Wilson, is the pastor of the School of Discipleship up at Canyon Hills Bible Church in Bothell. He and his family have been there for about a year. Uh, His wife, Tracy, is here with him, along with their children, Luke and Abigail, so we're so glad they can join us. Now, we have, Veronica and I have a personal connection to Pastor Mark Uh, He was the principal of Santa Clarita Christian School in Santa Clarita, California, where Veronica taught high school Spanish for eight years. He was the principal there for five years, and they overlapped for four of those years. So, uh, Veronica highly regards him and highly respects him, and he was even at our wedding. So, we we love Mark and Tracy, and we're so thankful they can be with us this morning. One quick story, I don't even know if, I don't even think they know this, but... um, so one, every year, the seniors at Santa Cruz Christian get to go to Hawaii on a senior trip. And uh, one year, Mark and Tracy and Veronica were both voted by the students to be the chaperones um, that year. So they got to go to Hawaii together with a bunch of students, tough job, right? <laughs> and um, at that trip, Veronica noticed at the meals that Mark and Tracy, after the prayer, would always give a quick kiss to one another. She said, "Oh, that's such a <laughs> sweet tradition. And when I get married, I want to do that, and Veronica and I had been dating for about a month and a half at this point, so she had me on her mind, and when we got married, she told me on my honeymoon about that, on our honeymoon, we started doing that, and so pretty much after every meal prayer, after every prayer, excuse me, after every prayer at the start of the meal, we give a little kiss to one another, and we learned that from Mark and Tracy, so just a great little uh, (laughs) wedding tip that we picked up. Uh, maybe a tad bit embarrassing for both of us, but they've—you know—I I, I do not know them very well. Veronica knows them super well, but they have already impacted our marriage for the last three and a half years just <laughs> by their example. So, on that note, you, we have a godly man coming to us, and he will bring us the word this morning. So, let's give a warm welcome to Pastor Mark Wilson.
1: Thank you for that. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 93. Boy, do I have some stories for you. <laughs> no, honestly, two of the most wonderful people. I'm um, thankful that you are blessed with them and thankful that God has brought them here. What a treat it has been to get to know them and just the testimony of their faithfulness, love for God's Word, uh, and active cultivation of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Just a great example in so many ways. So... Um, Feel free to follow that example, though. You know, when you go out to lunch today, feel free to follow it up with a kiss after you pray, just to carry on the tradition. Psalm 93, verses 1 through 5. I will read these verses and then open our time with a word of prayer. Psalm 93, verses 1 through 5. I'm reading from the NASB. The Lord reigns, He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let's pray. Father, please help us to accurately hear and apply your word today. May these truths shine as a light that reveals your infinite glory, exposes our desperate need, and transforms us into the likeness of your Son, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are indeed in difficult days, both on a personal level as well as an international level. Christians live in a hostile world that is full of trials. If you're not in one now, you know how the saying goes, just wait a little while. You will be in a trial. And not just trials, but at times overwhelming trials, but really this should not surprise us, should it? Jesus told us in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. But he also says in that same verse, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Those are Jesus' words to you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that trials will come, but you already stand in victory? Do you truly believe that Jesus has overcome and being in him, you now stand with him in that victory? If yes, then let me ask you the hard question. Does your life show it? Is there evidence of this confidence? Can others see it in you? Is your position in Christ and your profession Of Christ seen in how you live for Christ in times of difficulty you've heard the old adage who's the bigger fool the one who cannot read or the one who can read but will not read well the same holds true in a different way who is the bigger fool the one who does not know God or the one who knows God but will not trust him in adversity well we know from Psalm 14 and Psalm 52 that indeed the greatest fool is the one who denies that there is a God However, Christians too often act like fools when we forget the greatness, the goodness, the sufficiency of our God when trials come. And we constantly stumble in the face of worldly circumstances and fleshly difficulties. Now, don't get me wrong. We all have times of short-sightedness, don't we? We all have time of weak faith. It's simply a fact of living in this world as a Christian That From the same heart proceeds godly faith and worldly fear. We all at times waver. But this really shouldn't be the case. God has given us the resources to persevere in confident joy and to have hope in hard times. So again, the question is, having the power and the promise of God at your disposal at any and every time, how do we not act like fools? And by extension, how do we encourage other believers? When difficult times come, when trials come, when tribulation hits as surely as it will hit in the midst of suffering, difficulty, discouragement, and trials, how can we minister to a brother or a sister in Christ? In Psalm 93, we'll see that because God reigns, Christians can have confidence and comfort in the midst of life's trials. Because remember, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. We don't know who wrote Psalm 93. Some say it was David. Others say because of the wording and structure, it was Isaiah. We don't know. As far as when it was written and the the circumstances around its composition, we don't know that either. At the same time, Psalm 93 doesn't require that because the, the truths that are contained in Psalm 93 are timeless Because God is timeless. Psalm 93 is what we call in the midst of the Psalter, theocratic psalms, enthronement psalms, kingly psalms. Psalm 90 through 100 all focus on the sovereignty and the goodness and the greatness and power of God. And Psalm 93 especially focuses on his majesty and supremacy in contrast to all opposing powers, all opposing forces, all opposing trials and tribulations, both around the world and in your life. So beginning in verses 1 and 2, we see right off the bat that the Lord's dominion is established. Right off the bat, the Lord's dominion is established. And right away in verse 1, we see this. You see it there. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns, specifically Yahweh reigns. The reference here is to the personal divine name of God Almighty. Not just any God, but the covenant-keeping God of your salvation. He is the one who is reigning. He is the one who rules. He is the one who is on the throne. We're not just talking about another king, another human king. Instead, we're talking about divine kingship. And when we talk about Yahweh reigning, we're not talking about a president like we might be familiar with in the United States, praise the Lord. You know, one who is elected to rule accountable to others and limited in their ability and the duration of their reign. That's not what we're talking about. Rather, this verse is telling us that Yahweh and no one else is and always will be king. It is clearly an assertion of supreme and universal power of God over all things. God reigns over peoples, creation, governments, circumstances, your circumstances, specifically today, right now. The Lord reigns. Everything. In Isaiah 40, God asks this rhetorical question, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? The answer is, no one, Lord. None. No one is like you. So the first thing you must know for confidence and comfort in trials is this. God's power is supreme. God's power is supreme. You see, We have to ask ourselves, does this this mean anything to us? Does it mean anything to you? Does the fact that God has power over everything have significance in your life? It should give you confidence in the midst of chaos, comfort in the midst of confusion, peace in the midst of difficult circumstances, and hope, being assured and knowing for certain that all things do indeed work together for those Who love God and are called according to his purpose because because he has the ability to bring it about therefore since God's power is supreme your confidence can be supreme can't it to further illustrate this point the psalmist details for us why this is so not only does our God reign he is you see it there clothed with majesty isn't that great What an image, what a picture. His clothing, his covering, his his adornment, they're not like ours. They're majestic, meaning that his clothing is dignity, grandeur, splendor. It's that which leaves a person in awe when they see it or even today as you consider it. Like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, in seeing this vision of the Lord, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, declares, woe is me. I am undone as he beheld the beauty and the majesty of our God. That beauty, that majesty, that power that leaves you in awe in light of who God is should overshadow your circumstances, should overshadow all the details of your life, those trials, those tribulations and All the rest. But there's more. We also read in verse 1 that the Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. So he's not just clothed with majesty, but robed with power. And did you notice what the text says? He has girded himself. Girded himself. This is used figuratively to denote not only strength, but get this strength with intent specifically the intent of a warrior. To gird oneself was to take the loose clothing and tuck it into the belt. The idea is that you are ready for action. You see, this is a beautiful thing. God reigns. He has all power. He's ruling and reigning over over everything, and yet he has readied himself to respond on your behalf. He has readied himself to do whatever's necessary in action for his glory and for your good. Are you in a trial? God is ready to take action on your behalf. And so we ask ourselves am, am I ready to trust him to take action on my behalf? Am I trusting that he's already taken action on my behalf in this trial, in this tribulation? Notice also that the Lord has girded himself. There's a reflexive form of this verb, if you know what that means. The the short point of it means nobody has girded, nobody has robed, nobody has clothed God. He did it to himself. And nobody else has the right to, the authority to, the the power to, or position to, but God himself is ascribed with power. Worldly kings draw their strength, draw their influence from popularity armies land or wealth their power is ascribed to them by others and only effective if recognized by others but our god is supremely powerful in and of himself aw pink says it this way power belongeth unto god and to him alone and not a creature in the entire universe has an atom of power save what god delegates but god's power Is not acquired, nor does it depend on recognition by any other authority. Power belongs to our God inherently. He's powerful whether you want to admit it or not. He's powerful without your help. God is all powerful. In light of this reality, the psalmist simply declares the obvious in verse 1 when he says, Indeed, the world is firmly established, it will not be moved. This isn't wishful thinking, but a firm conviction and an unshakable reality. The term for world refers to more than just the earth with the created stuff that we see and we touch, but its principalities and powers, everything in all places, both visible and invisible, the Lord owns it. God has established it, and He is the only one who can alter or dissolve it. Psalm 24 reminds us the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world. And those who dwell in it he reigns over all of it you remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning God created and you remember how he created out of nothing but his voice he spoke and it happened and there was nothing no one ever to resist it what God chooses to do what God decides to bring forth will come to pass that is ultimate power. Stephen Sharnock, in his great book, The Attributes of God, puts it this way. All that can be comprehended of God's power are but little fringes of it, a small portion. No man ever discoursed or can of God's power, as I'm attempting to do now, (laughs) according to the magnificence of it. No creature can conceive it. God himself only comprehends it. God himself is only able to express it. Therefore, now get this, we have reason to acknowledge him almighty who have power of acting above our power of understanding. Consider miracles. We call something a miracle because it's beyond our ability to explain it. To God, a miracle is simply God being God, showing that he's in control, and he doesn't work according to our rules, our laws, these sort of things, but he works according to his own counsel, power, and authority. Again, God's power is supreme, and since his power is supreme, our confidence can be supreme, and there's no need to be shaken. Worried, anxious, fearful by what the world can do to you when our God reigns. A second truth for a Christian's confidence and comfort is found in verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. Your throne is established from of old. In short, not only is God's power supreme, but God's authority is sovereign. What's the difference between this power and this authority? Well, power refers to one's ability. The authority refers to one's right to exercise that ability, if, when, how, in whatever way they like. So not only is God's power supreme, but God's authority is absolutely sovereign. And honestly, I believe this is where most of us Christians begin to stumble in our faith, Sure, God is powerful, they say, but but the world is hostile, and Satan is crafty, and I'm still responsible for getting the job done, aren't I? I'm still the captain of my own ship, right? Wrong. Our God reigns. He sits on the throne. He's supreme in power, and he is sovereign in authority. You might believe that God is all-powerful, but if you're not convinced that God also has the authority to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants search the scriptures and understand the sovereignty of God. Now, sovereignty, believe it or not, that's a despised term among non-Christians. You mean I give up? I lose my sovereignty? There's somebody who rules things in my life over me? Absolutely, yes. You see, to the Christian, there is great comfort to this idea of sovereignty, this truth of sovereignty. And the scriptures Declare it to us again and again. God has all authority to do anything he desires. Job 42, 2. You remember Job. Through all of the trials, God then speaks to Job. As God reveals himself to Job in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the confusion, and all the rest, Job then declares back to God, I know now that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and in earth. And Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. You serve a God That is supremely powerful. You serve a God whose sovereignty is full. Charles Spurgeon said this, there is no doctrine more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. I believe this. This is true. You need to believe this as well. There is comfort found in the sovereignty of God. However, this same doctrine of comfort is a thorn in the flesh of the unbeliever who wants to be their own boss, their own king, their own God and sit on well, the throne that belongs to God alone. And you see it there in the text. Your throne is established. Friends, the throne belongs to God. It's his. The term throne references the sovereign ruling authority of Yahweh. He has authority to govern, to bless, to save, to condemn, to judge, to discipline, and to shepherd his sheep as he sees fit because as christians we understand that god is completely sovereign as colossians 1 16 and 17 says by him all things were created both in heaven and on earth both visible and invisible thrones dominions powers rulers rulers and authorities all things have been created what by him and for him Incidentally, he always has, and he always will. He didn't have to conquer somebody to take this position. God has always had this position, and there is nobody who will take it from him. You see in the text, from of old. In other words, from eternity past. God's throne is his always. He is the uncontested king. There is no other. God's power is. Is supreme and God's authority is absolutely sovereign and there's a third truth for building a stable life notice the last part of verse 2 you are from everlasting the third point may seem obvious but it's sorely forgotten and not only is God's power supreme not only is God's authority sovereign, but his existence is separate. God's existence is separate. The second portion of verse 2 speaks to the nature of his person. Specifically, we're talking about his eternality. You see, here's the issue we've done too much humanizing of God in modern Christianity. As Martin Luther wrote to Erasmus in their exchange of letters, Martin Luther finally writes to Erasmus to rebuke him, quote, your thoughts of God are too human, Erasmus. How about you? Have you made God too human? Many modern preachers would say, God is just like your closest buddy, He's really just like a favorite friend. God's really not much different than you are, so go ahead and rail your complaints about him and rail your complaints against him. One author even says, and forgive him for the way that he's offended you. Modern Christianity has too often humanized God. When we stop, I should say, when did we stop? Coming before our Creator with fear and trembling. Whatever happened to the fear of the Lord? We read in the Bible that God is love. Yes, God is love, but he's still God. And he's God Almighty, always has been and always will be. His existence is separate. He's different than we are. Remember God's response to Moses when he said, Moses said to God, I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, they may ask me, what is his name? What what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, God always is. Self-existent, separate, different than we are. Allow me to let you in on a little secret. God is from everlasting, and you're not. He's God, and you're not God. Here's the point. God is different than we are. He doesn't just act differently than we are, than we do. He is qualitatively, eternally, essentially different, separate. His existence is separate. Rebuking the wicked on this same issue in Psalm 50, God declares in Psalm 50, you thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. In other words, I will put myself on display. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. In Leviticus 10, Moses reminds Aaron, after the death of his sons Nadab and Abihu, you remember that, Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire. They brought that which was common. They they did that which God commanded them not to and treated their job and treated their God as casual in their service But after Nadab and Abihu died Moses comes to Aaron and he said it is what the Lord has spoken when he said by those who come near me I will be treated as holy and before all people I will be honored. And Aaron kept silent. There is far too much humanizing of God. And I believe this is where we begin to disregard his holiness, his separateness. Let us not be those who blaspheme God by treating him as common. Maybe this is why we often live our lives as if there is no God, we see him as too human. And I'm not here to deny the full humanity of Jesus Christ. I I totally agree with that, but I want to emphasize the fact that though Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, we need to understand it is he who sits on the throne, the lamb, the almighty who has blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. We must rightly understand, regard him It's when we see God for who he is that we explode in gratitude for our Lord Jesus Christ. When we understand our sin in light of the eternal holiness, separateness, otherness of our God, that we realize this gap that Jesus has bridged by his sacrifice, by his death, by his perfect life on your behalf. And we explode in praise to him out of thanks for these things. Romans 5 says it this way, Through Jesus also we have obtained our inheritance by faith into this grace in which we stand, and now we exult in hope of the glory of God and in our tribulations. You see, Paul even puts your tribulations in light of the glory of God. We must do that as well. He is not like us. His power is supreme. His authority is sovereign, and his existence is... Is separate. In light of this, allow me to give you a quick piece of advice. Before you say to somebody, oh, I understand what happened. You should do this or you should do that. Before telling somebody you should, start with he is. In other words, before you give your best advice, point to the reality of God's presence and power before addressing the specifics of their trial, put it in the context of his triumph. God is supreme in power. His authority is sovereign. His existence is separate. Those are our three points for living a stable life in a world that's hostile in the midst of trials and tribulations and all the rest. Now, I promised you at the beginning that I would give you those three truths. I've given you those three truths, but we've only made it through two verses. Well, there's an interesting structure in this psalm that that reminds us of the reality of who God is in light of the the circumstances and situation we're in. And I'd like to illustrate it this way just by telling a quick story, not about Stephen and Veronica, but um, my daughter, actually. When she was learning to swim, I would take her in the pool, right? And I would hold her. And I would say, Daddy's holding you. I won't let you go. It'll be okay. And then I'd plunge her under the water for a couple seconds, right? And pull her back up out of the water. And she... And I would hold her close. And I would say, Daddy's got you. I didn't let you go. You are okay. You see, Psalm 93 was built with this context. We're given these three truths in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, we see the hostile forces that oppose that reality, only to be reminded in verses 4 and 5 of those same three truths. Let's walk through it for a minute and take a look. The Lord's dominion is challenged in verse 3. The Lord's dominion is challenged When we read the floods, it is speaking of the opposing forces of this world, the raging or the pounding of the peoples. In fact, we can see it in Psalm 94. If you pick it up, just look over a little bit. In Psalm 94, verse 2, rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your peoples, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger, and they murder the orphans. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. So when we read in verse 3 of the floods and the waters, it's only an image Of the raging and the roaring and the pounding of the world's forces and the repetition we see there is a literary device showing that this is a present and constant threat that does not let up have you ever felt like that some trials just keep coming some discouragements just keep hitting they come and they come and they come and honestly to step aside for a second and say it's not really against you it's against him But they rage and they pound. What are these things? Outwardly, they're they're governments, media, secular culture, even at times religious institutions that are railing inwardly our own flesh, our own lust, our own greed, our own pride, or laziness. Or it could be your circumstances that are pounding against you. It could be the death of a loved one or divorce or cancer, financial difficulty, all the rest. All of these things pounding, unrelenting, coming at you. But be encouraged, you who belong to Jesus Christ. Be encouraged. If God has overpowered your selfish and rebellious heart to bring about your salvation, does he not also have the power to uphold you in the midst of trials, to carry you through the fire, to see you through the storm? It's not just a passing comment, but when Paul writes to the Philippians that I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is confidence in light of the reality of who God is, even though the circumstances are awful. The trials hurt. The tribulations pierce. He is faithful. Now, here's the application And quite honestly, the reality of Psalm 93. We could sum it up this way With God, there is victory in the midst of violence. With God, there is victory in the midst of violence. This is why, verse 4, you see it in verse 4, those first two words. I love these words. More than. More than. Indicating a sharp comparative contrast. Oh, sure, the waves are pounding and they rage and they don't let up. They have power, but they don't have any power against the all-powerful one. These evil forces are powerful, but God is more powerful. More than the sounds of many waters. In addition, the Lord is, verse 4, on high. Revealing that God transcends the raging of the peoples God transcends these things so intimately evolved in your life and yet untouched by the railing and abuse and scoffs That come at him. I like the way Psalm 2 puts it He who sits in the heavens laughs at them He scoffs at them Verse 4 ends with the statement that God is mighty, reminding the reader again of our first point. God's power is supreme. In the midst of the pounding waves of adversity and trial and tribulation, God's power remains supreme. But, you know, I mean, even though God's power is supreme, isn't there really a chance Isn't there a chance that the cleverness of the wicked might fool him or somehow usurp his authority some way, sometime? Verse 5 gives us the clear answer. Your testimonies are fully confirmed, it says. By testimonies, we're referring to God's commands, God's decrees, God's covenants, God's promises, those revelations which come forth from his throne of authority. God has the power to rule over all, and he rules his people by his word, by his testimonies, and they are what? Fully confirmed. If something's fully confirmed, it means that it's very sure. It is as good as done, and it is worthy of your trust. So we ask ourselves, in light of this, in light of him, do I trust him? Do I trust that his testimonies are fully confirmed and that God's authority is sovereign? Last, we are reminded again that God is separate in his existence. Verse 5, the last part of verse 5 there, Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Holiness befits your house. One of my Hebrew professors called this uh, holiness the crown of his divinity. It's really the attributes of all of God's attributes because whatever He is in love, He is holy in love, different in love, perfect in love. God is absolutely holy, separate, unique. Holiness is the quality that sets the Lord apart from others. Holiness befits His house. This means that the house of God, that is the place of His presence, is. It is different. It's separate in essence, qualitatively different, functionally different. God is holy in both nature and character. Holiness is the adornment that beautifies the Lord's house and, and distinguishes him from all others. on a point like that I can't help but to just ask if in fact God is holy and in fact he is holy and then he calls us to be holy as he is holy what implication does that have for your life in the midst of trials we find hope in the midst of his holiness his separateness and yet at the same time he wants a watching world to see your life reflect that same nature and character Obviously, not to the extent that God is, but to the extent that you are trusting Him and He dwells in you, they should see a reflection of this. God has clothed Himself with holiness forevermore. In other words, the same point there, eternally. He is eternal. God's existence is separate. Now, this psalm does more than just deliver comfort in the midst of trials. It it demands a response in light of revelation. Every time God reveals himself, it demands a response. And the right response in this particular situation is to worship him and to trust him for who he is in your trial right now today. A.W. Tozer once said, much of our difficulty as Christians stems from our unwillingness to take God as He is and adjust our lives accordingly. We insist upon trying to modify Him and bring Him nearer to our own image. Instead, let us begin with God, above all, before all, first in sequential order, above in rank and station, exalted in dignity and honor, when we read who God is in light of our circumstances and he is affirmed to be just as he has revealed himself to be, then we cannot walk away unchanged. We must live differently. We must respond like David did in 2 Samuel 22, who declares, therefore I will give thanks to the Lord among the nations. I will sing praises to your name Or we respond like Isaiah did, Woe is me, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Yet, here I am, send me. Or we respond like Mary who who exalts the Lord, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for me, his humble bond slave for the Mighty One has done great things. Or we respond like the Apostle John, who, when he sees them in Revelation chapter 1, falls at his feet like a dead man. Each of those would be an appropriate response. And yet too often, we see the response of Pharaoh reflected in the hearts of men, who in Exodus chapter 5 When Moses declares the word and the purpose of God, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord, and I will not obey. And we all know how that turned out. God's supreme in power, God is sovereign in authority, God is separate. In existence. When you are convinced of this, then we can join the heavenly choir as we read in Revelation 19. Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. I'd like to close with a final encouragement. When the waves of life are pounding and when you're feeling overwhelmed by the forces against you, scripture tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, that joy being accomplishing God's glory and attaining your good. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, the Son of God who has conquered all sits right now as your advocate in the place of power, in the place of authority. We can trust him. We need not play the fool when our God reigns. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, what can we say? We are silenced by your greatness and at the same time boil over with praise as we are exposed to the light and the heat of your glory. We thank you, our Father, for conquering our hearts, for exalting your Son, for fulfilling your promises. Lord, help us to trust you in trials to prefer you in temptations and to glorify you in victory. Cause us today, by the power of your spirit, to love you, to worship you, to obey you, to trust you. Cause us, Lord, to see afresh the reality that our God reigns. We pray all this in the mighty name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.